Well, our message uh, title today is called A Sign of Sovereignty. A Sign of Sovereignty. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, verses 16 to 20. Now, it's super familiar, this text, but I want us to take a step out of that familiarity and refresh it and ask the Lord uh, to give us fresh eyes on this text where Jesus is walking on water. Okay, sign of sovereignty, John 6, 16 to 21. And while you're turning there, loved ones, I have a question for you, and it is this. How many of us in this room right now have ever asked God for a sign? Okay, it's church. You can't lie in church. Hands up. Hands up. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, we ask God for a sign. Maybe it's something like this. Lord, please just show me a sign of what I'm supposed to do. For example, who am I supposed to marry? What job am I supposed to take? What choice am I supposed to make? How, how am I supposed to get through this trial, this darkness that we're facing? And maybe you're asking this of God right now. Maybe you asked Him on the way to church tonight in what you are facing. And I think if we're honest, we'll all say that we have done this. But what we will see here in John 6 is that the signs and miracles that Jesus performed, they indeed had a crucial purpose. But it's not the one that you and I like to think it is. We like to think that the reasons God does signs and miracles is about us and giving us what we want and what we are asking Him for. However, this is a crucial truth we must remember, so make sure we're writing this down because it's going to set the tone for the rest of the message. We must remember this. Signs from God are meant to point us back to God. Signs from God are meant to point us back to God. And each of them are rooted in His glory and for His glory alone. They are, each of them, meant to show us something more about Him. Something more about Him. And the purpose of this specific sign, here in John 6, where Jesus is walking on water, was specifically done to demonstrate Christ's deity. That is, He was the Son of God. By showing His sovereignty over the laws and power of nature. Now, no, no, no. Sovereignty is a big theological term. Okay? And I don't know about you, but when I hear big th- theological terms, I need to have them broken down for me so I can understand. All right, So let's break this down. We need some clarity. I love how Wayne Grudem, you'll see it on the screen, he describes sovereignty as this, God's exercise of power over his creation. Great definition. God's sovereignty is God's exercise of power over his creation. It is God having supreme power or authority over all things. Think about that for a moment. God having supreme power or authority over all things. Let's break that down even more. If I could break that down, it would be this. Layman's terms, ready? God is in control. There's God's sovereignty. It means God is in control. Every detail, every moment... Every step, God is in control. Now, how many of us in this room just needed to hear that? And you're like, okay, I'm good for the next week. I'm good. 
I'm good. I can, hey, hey, hang around. There's some more. There's some more coming, all right? But God is in control. And I don't know about you, but I get really comforted. Harvest Branford, I just get so comforted in knowing that there is literally nothing that can happen to me, nothing that can happen to you in our lives that God is not sovereign over. Is that comforting to you today? Nothing can happen. And yet at the same time, realize this, there is no other doctrine that our human flesh fights against more than this one. Do you agree? The fight of who has control. There is no greater doctrine that our flesh fights against more than this one. Who has control? Some examples. I, I want to have my timing on things. I want to get my agenda accomplished when I want to have it and how I want to have it accomplished. Maybe it's this. I I want my kids to behave a certain way. Well, as the father of four little boys, sometimes that's only good for 20 seconds, and then you're back down to square one. Where's that going to leave you? Maybe it's this. Well, I, I want to get married when I want to get married. I want things going the way I want them to at work. I want my health being the way I want it to be so I can do what I want to do. See this? This is going on all the time. I love how R.C. Sproul puts this. He says, most Christians will salute the sovereignty of God. What that means is, we say we recognize it. Yes, God's sovereign. He's in control over everything. We'll pay lip service to it. We salute the sovereignty of God, but we live out of belief in the sovereignty of man. We salute the sovereignty of God. Yes, God's in control, but we live out a belief in the sovereignty of man and we fight for this control over our lives. And what we so often fail to realize is that the sovereignty of God over our lives, loved ones, is a gift. It is a gift that is never meant to be something that is shunned or rejected, but is always meant to be embraced for our good and for his glory. It's a gift, God's sovereignty. And here in this text, just after he's fed the 5,000, we see Jesus showing his power and sovereignty over the laws of nature on the Sea of Galilee. And he shows us two crucial truths that we must embrace, church. We must embrace as we live out our lives under his sovereignty and face the situations that will come. Let's read this text together. John chapter 6, starting at verse 16. Jesus walks on water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Father, that is an awesome picture of your glory on display. Your sovereignty, your power, your authority, and I pray we would be humbled in your presence right now from even just those five verses. 
Father, I pray that you would remove distraction from this place. Whatever, whatever we're facing, coming in here, whatever's happened today or this past week or what we're anticipating in this weekend or the week to come, I pray we'd leave that right now. Will you say, cast your anxiety on me because I care for you. That we would do that willingly, joyfully, sacrificially, laying it down, knowing that you are in control and we will humble ourselves under you. Father, would you guard my mouth in what is about to be preached from your word. Say what you want to say, Lord. We are a people with a desperate need of a touch of glory here today. Would you please come, Holy Spirit? We ask for the Holy Spirit. Do your work, your convicting work, your refreshing work, your breaking work, your strengthening work, your, your power on display. May it be so and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, God is sovereign over my situation. Point one is this. I must trust Him through it. God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust Him through it. There's two key areas that we see in these first three verses that we're going to look at. First off, I must trust Him for His timing. I must trust Him for His timing. Look at verses 16 and 17. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Okay, these first two verses, I love this. What they're doing is they're setting the stage. They're giving the context for everything that's about to happen. Okay, so they're meant to heighten our anticipation of what Jesus is just about to do. But in order to get the full context... We need to look at the parallel Gospels and what they have to say, where they fill in some of the details that John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has not included here. All right? So we're going to jump over to the parallel Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14, where we see that immediately after feeding the 5,000 at dinner hour, Jesus made his disciples, notice that, he made his disciples, that's key, get into the boat and go ahead of him across to the other side of the lake while, while he went off to pray. And the indication that he gave the disciples when he sent them off was that he would be meeting up with them and then would come to them shortly. That's why the back half of verse 17 says, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Because we learned in Matthew 14, he promised, I'm going to meet up with you. So they're expecting him to come. But then look what happens in verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Okay, let's get some context and live in the text. Behind me, you're going to see a picture of the Sea of Galilee. And I was blessed by the grace of God. Other picture, do you have the calm picture there? Do you have the calm one? There we go. There we go. Spoiler alert right there. But here's the reality. There's the calm picture of Galilee. And by the grace of God, I was blessed to be able to live in Israel and um, this, i got to tell you, the Sea of Galilee is about 100 times more beautiful than what you're seeing in that picture right there. Little town of Tiberias in the top right corner of your screen there. It just, it's gorgeous. All right? It's roughly 600 feet below sea level. And you notice there, it's not very wide, eh? It's the largest freshwater lake in the Middle East, yet it's not very wide. And you'll notice it's surrounded by mountains. It's surrounded by hills around the vast majority of it. And as beautiful as that looks, when it is nice and calm 
The reality is this. When the wind starts to blow, what do you think happens when it's 600 feet below sea level and it's surrounded by mountains? When that wind starts to blow, it literally creates a wind tunnel that churns up water into a violent storm. Okay, next picture. Within minutes. This is what it would look like just like five minutes later, loved ones. These fishermen knew when that wind started to blow, they better get their boats off the lake quickly. This was coming, and this is just the start. It's a wind tunnel that's going through. And as such, when, when John says here, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, he's not talking about some little, you know, strong wind, okay, a little breeze, you know, just keep your hat on. He's like, pack up the wife and kids, get off the boat, it, the, the storm's coming. He's depicting a violent squall. And in fact, the parallel gospel writings of this event in Matthew and Mark, their boat was described as being battered by the waves far out from the land and that the disciples were straining at the oars just to make any progress. You say, well, I could handle the storm. Okay, hey, 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 loved ones. Let's not forget that at least seven of those disciples in the boat were professional fishermen. Seven of them. They knew how to handle the water. So if this is going on, you know it's really bad because they can't take the heat. All right? Seven were professional fishermen, at least. Now leave that picture up there, and we're going to live in the text. Put yourself in, in that boat. How would you be feeling in this moment right here if you were a disciple? You're in a boat, and this is starting to happen. The squall's coming. And then you remember, Jesus made you get in the boat. He made you get into the boat knowing this was coming. He sent you into the storm. And he said he'd meet up with you. He says, I'm coming, guys. I'm coming. Yet by every physical or natural indication, that doesn't seem likely. Because you and everyone else in the boat may not even reach the shore. I mean, can you, just picture, you're in the boat. Can you see them straining as hard as they can and hear them crying out in fear? We can't row anymore. We can't row anymore. We're exhausted. The waves are too much. The darkness is too thick. The storm is too great. And we can't see a way through. We literally have no control. You see that going on? Can you see them start to wonder, does Jesus even care that we're still out here going through this? Does he even care? Doesn't he know the storms? He made me get in this boat. We're just following what he said. Does he even care? Can he see this? Can he hear us crying out? Shouldn't he have acted by now? Can we even trust that he's going to come and do what he said? He's taking too long. Okay, full stop. Do any of those questions sound familiar to you? They sure do to me. Does Jesus even see? Does Jesus even know? I followed him and look where it took me into the storm. Can he see the waves battering right now? Can he see me getting tossed right now? 
Can you see the darkness closing in right now? It's not getting lighter outside. It just seems to be getting worse. I mean, don't we do the same thing when we're in the storm? When we're in the uncertainty, when we're in the darkness, when we're in the trial, when the fear and the fatigue begin to take their toll on us, we ask the same questions, we cry out the same things. And we begin to feel as though God is taking too long to act in the situations we face. And we begin to doubt that He's in control and in His ability to come and help us. And as a result, we try to force our way through. We try to take it on our own strength. God's taking too long. He's not saying, I'm doing my own thing. I'm just plowing through instead of waiting. And we end up getting hurt. So question, what is that? For you right now. What is that trial? What is that situation? What is the storm? What is the uncertainty right now? That you are faced with. That's causing you to doubt God's sovereignty. In that situation you're facing. When you're just waiting for God to act. And you're like how long oh Lord? How long? Maybe for some of us it's in our jobs. Don't you see I need to pay bills? Don't you see I'm about to lose the house? Don't you see the debt mounting? Maybe for some of us, it's in our marriage. Don't you see the pain that's happening here? Why can't you just heal the marriage already or the marriage of someone that you love? You're watching them go through this. The tension is so great. The pain is hurting. Don't you see it? Why do you do nothing? Maybe for some of us, it's with our health. Don't you see the pain that I'm in? Been praying for healing for years. Maybe some of us for years, decades in this very room. Don't you see it? Won't you act? Why? Fear, fatigue, I'm worn out. Maybe with our kids. I have prodigal children walking away and I've been praying for years for them. Why don't you save them? Why don't you open their eyes to see the truth? What has to happen? And yet, loved ones, right in the middle of that, right in the middle, when the waves are crashing and the boat is being better, you feel like it's going to tear apart and the darkness just seems to be deepening, God says this, Psalm 27, 14, he says this, wait for the Lord. Wherever you're at right, right now, loved one, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Or you hear Psalm 37, 5. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Don't commit it to your own agenda. Don't try to force things ahead. Don't, don't commit your way to what the world says you should do. Trust in Him, and He will act. Whenever God puts a will there, circle it in Scripture, because that's a promise. He will act. If God has called you to it, God will see you through it. Amen? If God has called you to it, God will see you through it. He will act. Every provision every place, every part in His time for His glory.
You see, God in His sovereignty is always in control, completely trustworthy, and will always fulfill what He says He will do in His time, which is, hey loved ones, great news, His time is the perfect time for us. Amen? His time is the perfect time for us. Jesus said He was coming to the disciples, so guess what He's going to do? He's going to come. Whether our emotions believe that or not, whether our feelings see that or not, loved ones, if we are going to trust in the sovereignty of God, we must move from emotion to devotion. That God is going to act. Feelings are great followers, but they're horrible leaders. He's going to act. Why? Because Jesus... Not our emotions. Jesus, not the circumstance. Jesus, not the world, always has the final say. Amen? He's the one with the authority. All authority. He has the final say. And we have to believe this. Have to believe this, loved ones. In our waiting, God is working. It's not like God just has his feet up being like, yes, you know, oh, maybe later. In our waiting, God is working. We have to believe that. I love how John Piper so poignantly puts this. You'll see it on the screen. He says this. The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. Let me read it again. The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. And loved ones, here's the reality. It may not happen when you're expecting. It may not happen when you'd like. Now, Lord. He's like, no, loved one. If I gave it to you now, you'd get hurt. It's not good for you right now. It may not be when you're expecting, but it will be the right time because it will be God's time for you. The one who loves you. The one who's sovereign. Hey, question. Do you believe this right now in your waiting? In that storm, in the trial, in the situation? Do you believe this is true? It changes everything. Loved ones, hey. We must Trust God's promises more than our perceptions. We must trust God's promises more than our perceptions of what we think is going to happen in a situation, more than what we think the outcome is going to be. We must trust God's promises of what He knows is going to be. Trust God's promises more than perceptions. Moving from emotion to devotion. In what we're facing. And this is what the disciples needed to have faith and believe right here. And what we must have the faith to believe today and be reminded of. And because God is sovereign over my situation, loves me, and is a good father, I must trust him through it to act in his timing. But, but I must also trust him through it to act in his way. Not just his timing, but his way. Look at verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Okay, once again, we must look 
to the gospel parallels to fill in some details for us. You'll see it on the screen. Matthew 14, 24. You'll see it on the screen. It says this. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, wait a second. Remember that picture of the Sea of Galilee I put up there? The Sea of Galilee is not that big, is it? So how, what's the description, what's the significance of Matthew writing that it was a long way from the land? It's only a few miles wide. What does that mean? This means the boat's not near the shore. Because it could, there's not much distance to go from shoreline to shoreline width-wise, right? So if it's a long way from the land, where does the boat have to be? It has to be in the center. It has to be where the place where the wind is the most torrential, where the waves are the most pounding. They can't just get out. See what Jesus, Jesus literally moved them into the center of the lake. He commands the waves. He commands the wind. And where did he put them? Not with a little escape route, just when the wind starts piling up and the waves just hop out and get to the shore. He literally puts them in the middle. He's like, you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. He deliberately had them go to the middle of the lake in the deepest water. And we're also told in Matthew 14, 25 that it was now the fourth watch of the night when this was happening. Now, now the Jerusalem clock starts at 6 a.m., so the fourth watch of the night is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And then the day starts over. First watch goes from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., etc., etc. The fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. now. They're in the center of the lake. Okay, question. Uh, when did they get in the boat? Remember? When did they get in the boat? They got in the boat immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000. They got in the boat at the dinner hour. And it's now between 3 and 6 a.m. How long have they been in the boat? Hours. Hours. Not just, okay, I'll give it to you for half an hour. Hours. Struggling, fighting, doubting, fearing, and nowhere near the land. And now look what happens next. 19, back half. When they rode about three or four miles, here it is. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Huh? Like, what? Okay, stop. This is where, don't let familiarity cloud this moment right here, loved ones. Let's read it again. They saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Uh -huh. Loved ones, honestly. You know what the problem with familiarity is? Familiarity. That's the problem. Do not let familiarity with this truth right here. Cloud the magnitude of what. Jesus has just done and how awesome God's power is right now. Awesome. In the middle of the storm, 
Hey, loved ones, every word, Psalm 1830, if you don't believe me, but every word of God's word is true. That means this actually happened. I was going to try to demonstrate that here, get a little tank. That would just go bad. (laughs) This actually happened. It's not just a story. It's a narrative of what actually took place. And here we see this awesome picture of Jesus making himself known to his disciples on his terms. You say, wait a second, how is it his terms? Do you honestly think the disciples expected Jesus to meet them this way? I mean, could you and I even imagine this happening? It's his terms. What he says goes. And in, but instead of recognizing him for who he was, they became frightened and terrified. The parallel Gospels of Matthew and Mark, it says they thought he was a ghost and they started crying out and were frightened. They saw this ghost coming toward him. Okay, stop. Like, how, <laughs> how do you even unpack this? How do you even describe it to do it justice? Like, so to help me, I have a picture for you. And it's one of my favorite pictures. It's going to go up, Lord willing, in my office one day. It's right there. It's going to go up in my office. I'm sitting there and prep this afternoon, reviewing this message, praying. I just started weeping again. Look how powerful that picture. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You're in the boat in the middle of the lake now. Just look at that picture. It's the middle of the night in a raging storm, and you are terrified. It's totally dark all around. It's like 3 a.m. It's totally dark. You can't see anything. You're just about out of strength, so you're afraid. You're fatigued. Waves are tossing your boat all over the place for hours. You have no strength left, and there's a good chance by this point you're thinking you're going to die. And then out of the darkness, out of the darkness, you hear the wind. You see things blowing. You hear your friends screaming in terror. Out of the darkness comes Jesus. And it's terrifying to you that you think you see a ghost. Out of the darkness he comes. And he's there. Okay. This begs the question. If you look at that picture. um, Why wouldn't Jesus just calm down the wind first? And make sure that they eventually made it to the other side of the lake before meeting up with them. Did you ever think about that? Wouldn't he be doing what he said he'd do? Yeah, he was still going to meet up with them. Just calm the wind down, though. Get them to the shore. Just a little quick jaunt across the lake. See you there, boys. Why didn't he do that? Why did he do it this way? Why didn't he do that instead of sending them through this storm and then walking on water towards them? Here, if I could break that down, it's this. Why didn't he make it just comfortable and easy? Why didn't he just make it comfortable for them? Easy for them? He could do that, right? He is sovereign, right? He could have done it. Why reveal himself this way? Here's the answer. Because even though this This right here was not the way the disciples would have liked it. It was the way that Jesus, in his sovereignty, knew they needed it. 
He knew they needed, and loved ones, hear this, hear this. God will often withhold what we want so that he and his love for us can give us what we need. I'm just going to say it again. God will often withhold what we want so he can give us what we need. Jesus wanted something much more than for them just to get to the shore. He wanted their faith. He wanted their faith in him to see and believe in who he really was as the son of God who has authority and sovereignty over all creation, even going to the lengths of supernaturally suspending the law of gravity to prove this to them. I won't illustrate that either. See, in their way, the disciples just wanted the shore. Just get me to that shoreline. Forget Jesus at this point. Just get me to the shore. Just get me that provision. In Jesus' way, he wanted their hearts. The shore was just too small a thing. They wanted the shore. Jesus wanted their heart. They, he wanted them to see him for who he really was. And even though he had tried to show them his true identity and his power through all of the signs that he had performed up to this point, the hearts of the disciples were still hard and couldn't recognize him or his sovereignty over their lives. And quite often, Jesus, you ever notice this, loved ones? Quite often, Jesus will take us to the end of ourselves because it's in those times we see him for who he really is and realize if we humble ourselves under him that he is all we need. You don't need the shoreline. You need me. He is all we need. It's not a comfortable place to be, but it is the best place to be. To know that He is all we need. So, so, question. How many of us are asking God to bring us through a trial we're facing right now? Or even in, hey, loved ones, you're like, I'm not facing a trial. Think about this. Even in the day-to-day, the so-called mundane stuff. How many of us are asking God to bring us through those things on our terms and in our way? Just let me go about my day in my way. No trial, I'm just my reg, quote-unquote, mundane. Listen, when God's glory is on the agenda, there's no such thing as a mundane activity. Understand that? That's a lie from the devil. When his glory is on the agenda, he always wants to be our first pursuit. And we do things in our time, in our way, in, in my marriage. It's like, God, if you just changed my spouse, it would be great. No more arguing. Eh, wrong prayer. Start, Lord, change me. Change my heart to seek you as my first love. And loved one, watch what he does in your marriage. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's this. Lord, the sickness. Maybe for years we're just calling out our time. Can't you do it now? Don't you see how much pain I'm in? And these things hurt. And it's, there's tears. Loved ones, know this. God keeps every one of your tears in a bottle. Psalms, read the Psalms, so beautiful. They tell us that. He writes every sigh in his book. He doesn't forget one of them. He sees it. He knows it. 
Maybe in our addictions, with our temptations, with our parenting. God, what am I doing? I feel like a failure as a father. I feel like a failure as a mother. My kids, I don't... And instead of trusting in his sovereignty and submitting ourselves to his way, we try to do things on our own terms. John Piper put it this way so beautifully. He says, the path of faithfulness is seldom a straight line. It's, the path of faithfulness is rarely just a little jaunt across the lake. Whoop, along the shoreline with an escape route if the waves get bad. God will often not do things the way you think he should. And he will not be forced into meeting our earthly agenda. Why? Because his agenda for us is always greater. And his glory, and not our own, is always the focus of it. He will not be forced into meeting our earthly agenda. He loves us too much for that. And his glory is always the focus of it, not our own. God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust him through it for his timing and for his way. And as we trust him in that, we are then able to see him through each part of it. God is sovereign over my situation. I must see him in it. Look at verses 20 and 21 as we close out. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. See here, Jesus finally identifies himself to the disciples after he saw they weren't recognizing him and they were frightened and terrified. And notice this, notice this. The words Jesus spoke here, it is I, do not be afraid, overcame the fear that the disciples were experiencing. Once they heard his voice and saw that it was Jesus and knew that he was with them, what's their response? No more fear. It says they were filled with gladness and eagerly invited him into the boat with them. See what happened there? His words and his presence had brought peace and gladness right into the middle of the storm. And they still do today. His words and his presence, peace, Gladness, as we'll find out in a moment, worship right into the middle of the storm. Because look what happens in the back half of verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. He's in. Here we go. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What? Immediately the boat which was in, hey, it was in the center of the lake. They've been trying to get to the shore for hours. Immediately, the boat is at the shore. Hey, guys, I'm in the boat. Time to unpack. What? Miracle number two. Now, I looked up the Greek, I was from skeptics maybe in this room. I looked up the Greek word for immediately. Do you know what it means? Immediately. <laughs> immediately. It's at the shore. See, here's what we have to understand, loved ones. Take great comfort in this. God can do more in five seconds than you and I can do in five hours, five days, or five lifetimes. You should, there's the proof. 
He can do more in five seconds than you and I can in five hours of struggling on our own strength. Five seconds. And to get the full picture of what's happening here after Jesus got in a boat and the wind had stopped, we need to go to Matthew 14. You'll see it on the screen where it says this, verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Climax moment right there. Mission accomplished. Truly, you are the Son of God. Notice here, but notice here how there's no mention in that verse. Notice this? There's no mention of the shore. They're not like, hey, Jesus, thanks for bringing this place. Nice grass. We could build a little colony over here. Shade. The shore is oblivious. Not to mention the whole lake, which was a raging squall that is now calm. They don't even mention it. Why? Because they were in the presence of God. And that is the game changer. All of these things that we want to pursue and think they're so valuable and so important are oblivious when we are face to face in the presence of the King of Kings. All these things we want and invest and strive for. He's like, really? Really? You can have me. When we seek the heart of God, God willingly opens the hand. They worshipped him. It's the only right response. The shore, loved ones, was just too small a thing. And at this moment, Jesus had their hearts. And they didn't understand his full deity yet. That wasn't going to happen until his crucifixion and resurrection. But he had their hearts right here. Question, does he have yours? Does he have yours right now? In that situation you're in. and that trial you're facing. Or are you still going to the shore as your greatest outcome? And all of a sudden, the shore, the very outcome they had been so focused on getting, devoting hours of effort to, became too small a thing for them to pursue in comparison to God's glory that was right in front of them, right through the storm. And they worshipped. Question. Are you and I worshipping in the storm? Are we worshiping in the trial? Are we not just waiting till it's calm and we get to the... Are we worshiping right in the middle of the uncertainty, in the pain, in the middle of that situation we are facing? Because the truth is this, Harvest Brantford, it's one I have to learn over and over again every day. The worst possible outcome in whatever situation we face is to get the outcome we want but to miss getting Jesus in the process. That's the worst possible outcome. Get what you want, but miss getting Jesus. Getting the health is just too small a thing. Getting the spouse is just too small a thing. Getting the children is just too small a thing. Getting the job is too small a thing. Getting the finances, the house, the car is just too small a thing. Hey, hey, this is, I'm preaching to myself right now. Planting a church, Ray, is just too small a thing. 
These are good things, but much too small to have as our first pursuit. Let's put it this way. Let's drill this down. If Jesus Christ never gave you or I anything else except the promise of eternal life with him, would that be enough for you? Be very careful how you answer that. Because he'll take you up on it. He's taken me up on it a number of times and he still does. Let's drill it down a bit more. Is Jesus Christ enough for you? If the health doesn't come. If the kids don't get saved. If there is no job. If there is no financial breakthrough. Is he still enough for you? You see, God always has a greater work in mind as we go through the situations we face, loved ones. And that greater work is him. He is the greatest outcome. Why? Because in his presence, there is lasting peace, rest, hope, joy, protection, and relief. I don't care what this world comes up with next, but there is nothing else or no other outcome, no other shoreline that can offer this. There is literally nothing else in this world that can take a crippling anxiety and replace it with lasting peace. There is nothing else that can take a crippling fear of man and replace it with faith. There is nothing else that can take mountains of doubt and hopelessness and replace it with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation in him alone. There's nothing else that can do that. And you can try other things. You're like, hey, hey, yo, bald guy, I don't believe you. Okay, cool. If that's where you're at, I want to talk to you for a second. Hey, you're trying all those other things. One question, how's that working for you? Are you getting the lasting peace? Are you getting the lasting hope, the lasting comfort, the lasting satisfaction? Okay, question. Then why do you have to keep going back to those things? There's an eternal longing, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that's been put in our heart that can only be filled by eternity itself, that can only be filled by Jesus Christ himself. And when we see him, loved ones, we find his strength. Our fears are defeated and his glory is shown in our lives as we worship him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Right in the middle of the storm. Right in the middle of it. Last question of the day. How about you? How about me? What are you looking to as your greatest outcome in the situations you're facing right now? Let's drill this down, get real specific. I want you to take a moment, just write down that one thing that just keeps coming up. What is that thing you're pursuing right now that is not Jesus Christ as your first love? What is that? Write that down and bring it before him. And confess it to him. Repent of it. Reminder, getting to the shore is just too small a thing. Are you getting him are you getting him by putting your faith in him alone and drawing near to him through his word through prayer and through worship right in the middle of what you're facing
And maybe you're here and your first step to getting him is to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to believe that he came as fully God and fully man to earth, lived a perfect life and died on a cross to swallow the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And maybe your first step to getting him right now, if you've never made that decision to trust him as your Lord and Savior, your first step is to repent of your sin and confess him as your Savior. And when he, said, he does, he says, it is I, don't be afraid. And the Bible is so clear that if that's you today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For today can be the day of your salvation. You can't earn this. It is by grace we've been saved through faith. This not of your works. You can't earn this. This is a gift of love and grace from your God. Because he loves you and gave his life for you. And maybe you're here and have surrendered your life to him, but you've begun to trust in other things. What's your small g gods? What is it? Finances, stuff, health, other people. What is it? And you've been trusting in these things, pursuing other outcomes, and now he's calling you back to repent and trust in his sovereignty to show you, loved ones, that he can still be trusted, he can still be seen, and he still says, right here, it is I do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. How will you respond to him today?